Well, good morning, church, and happy Memorial Day weekend. It's awesome to be here with you guys today, and I thank you for taking time out of your Memorial Day weekend to be here, to make this a part and a priority of your life before you go to the lake or go mix up a potato salad or, or whatever it is that you do on a weekend like this. It being Memorial Day weekend, I wanna definitely give honor where honor is due and, and thank those who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we can enjoy some of the freedoms that we get to enjoy today. And I wanna talk about that a, a little bit more, um, specifically leaning back into what we talked about last week. You know, we started out last week um, enter into a time of prayer. And we mentioned this reality that sometimes you can come to church and it, it just kind of flows from one thing to the another. And, and you, you come in, you get welcomed in, you sit down, you sing a song, maybe you do communion, you hear a message and then you leave. And one of the things that sometimes can be missing in, in an opportunity to come and, and worship Jesus together as a church is actually this time where we can kind of just pause and connect with God through prayer. And prayer can sometimes be this missing element in a church service if we're not careful. And it's just something that maybe we do kind of as a, a thing to get us to the next thing and not something that is one of the main things. And last week we took some time and just paused and prayed because we knew we were entering into a place where many of us have wounds. We were talking about our fathers. We were talking about our families. We were talking about things of our past and this new father that we had in God. And we began to pray specifically for our own individual lives but also for collectively us as a church that we would begin to experience what it means to have a father in God and to be adopted and made one in him. And today I feel like, you know, last week we we took some time praying for ourselves and praying for our church. And in light of what has happened this past week, I feel like God's been laying it on my heart to say, we need to begin to turn outward and spend some specific time praying for our nation. Because yet again, there's come a time where We've experienced tragedy and pain. And while today I know is a day where we look back and and we memorialize and remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice to help give us the freedoms and the rights that we have to be able to gather together and and to be a church like this and to pray in public like this, I don't think it would be dishonorable to them if we leveraged this time and this opportunity that they've given us to be able to pray specifically for the families who were affected by the tragedy in Uvalde, to pray specifically for the parents who will not be able to hold their children again, to pray specifically that, that our Father God would take what the enemy meant for evil and he would somehow, and again, only he could do something like this, that he would turn that and use it for good that we would maybe spend a few brief moments, even begin to pray that God would protect our kids, that he would protect the middle schoolers and high schoolers all around us. He would protect the elementary school kids all around us. And that he would somehow use us as a church to be a part of that protection. See, I don't think it is any strange coincidence that we ended last week by praying this collective prayer together. God, we will do whatever you call us to do to take care of orphans and vulnerable children. And as I look back on the the things that happened this last week, I'm just coming to the place where I look at the world and realize there's no such thing as a child who is not vulnerable. To the effects and the attempts of Satan to, to kill and to ruin every young life he possibly can. And this is where I believe the church has got to step up and step into our role to make a change. Now, again, you know, if you've been on social media over the course of the last week, you, you enter into this tension between some people who are going, 
thoughts and prayers and we change profile picture and we say, pray for uh, Uvalde, pray for Texas, pray for these things. And we pray for these things. And then there's this other side of things where we say, prayer is not enough. And thoughts and prayers do nothing. And deep within that heart cry of maybe the irreligious or the unreligious person, I, I can somewhat agree with you to go that, man, there has to be something more than just, Lord, help, pray, and, and prayers. And prayers and thoughts are great. And I believe that that, for, for, don't, don't misunderstand me, that is for sure where things have to start. But I believe that God has called the local church to do more than just pray. And so I, I echo my friends on the other side of the aisle potentially, who would say, reform needs to happen. I have that in common where I believe reform needs to happen in a way that actually will make a long and lasting difference though, is reform needs to happen in fatherhood. As I look at this, this nation that we're a part of, I see that there are 18.4 million kids, 18.4 million kids. That's one in four kids at this very moment in our nation do not have a biological father, a stepfather, or even an adoptive father in their home. What that means is, is one in four kids who walks into our student ministry, one in four kids who shows up in children's ministry over there, a, a quarter of the kids in student ministry and children's ministry potentially do not have a father, whether that's biological, adoptive, or even a foster father. They're not there. And when I look at the story of the tragedy in Texas, one of the very first questions I ask is what was the relationship like with his father? And I saw an interview with the father and my heart broke when I read these words. He was being interviewed and he said, my mom tells me that he, he's talking about the shooter. My mom tells me that he probably would have shot me too because he would always say that I didn't love him. See, I, we, can, we can look at our, our, our friends on maybe one side of the aisle, our brothers and sisters in Christ potentially, and, and, and just the people who we live and do life with, the people who are all also creating the image of God. And we can, we can long for gun reform, and then we can just long to, to pray and hope things get differently. But I'm, I'm asking us and calling us to be a peculiar people citizens of heaven, not citizens of America, but citizens who say that it's not one way or the other. Every effort of, of everything around us is to just get us to divide right down the middle and go one way or the other. I'm calling us to lean into all the things that we've been talking about, that we have been chosen from the beginning of time, predestined to be adopted by a father who loves us and wants to pour out blessing on us. And I believe that so many people in the absence of an earthly father, in the absence of a loving church to show them the love of father, they're going all out in the effects of sin in their life. And things like what we saw in Texas will continue to happen. And my hope and my prayer is that we understand this church, that we understand that when God thinks about this, think about this, when God goes, how in the world can I create a strategy to ensure that something like that doesn't happen in a middle school, elementary school, or in high school in McDonough? Part of his strategy is McDonough Christian Church to say, what will you do to affect the mental state of middle school and high school children so that their last 
are they to this broken, confused, dark place where any of those things ever become an option? What could you do to, to get to this place where the reform happens in the school, where they're protected from something like this ever happening? And that's where we come into play. Now, look, I, I, I'm talking to a room full of blue collar people. There, I don't think there are any politicians even in here. I know you, this church pretty well. I'm talking to general managers and warehouse workers and electricians and plumbers. Most of us are not gonna be able to by overnight go in and produce gun reform or get new laws or make things harder to do or harder to get. But what we can do for you men in the room is we can go home and be better fathers so that no one ever says of you, he doesn't love me. So that for the kids who do go, my dad doesn't love me. We can be a church where they know there's a multitude of men who do love me and show me what a man is like and pour that love into me and care for me where every little boy and girl in that children's ministry knows that they're loved and cared for, that every young man trying to figure out what does it mean to go from boy to a man in student ministry has somebody, has a man of God in his life that shows him that. That's the reform that I think will actually make a lasting change. And that's the, that's the reform I'm asking us to pray for today. Because you can make a difference. One that will happen way faster than any change that could happen in Washington. One that could happen today. So I'm gonna invite you here to, to pray specifically for the families of the 19 kids and two adults who lost their lives. I'm gonna ask you to pray specifically for the mental health of the middle schoolers and high schoolers in our country. And I'm gonna pray asking you specifically, ask God to show us exactly what it is that we need to do as a church to do everything that we can possible on our side of things to be a church that shows people the love of a father. Take some time, turn your heart outward. Pray for these people that you never met. Pray for middle schoolers, high schoolers of our community that you've never met. And pray that God would use you and he would use us somehow in some way to change. Jesus, we eagerly anticipate your return. I know you see it and I know you know it, but things are hard down here. We're, we're seeing things that don't make sense. We're encountering things that, that our, our finite minds cannot even begin to wrap around. And, and Jesus, I pray that you would protect us from, because of the frequency of these things that we see becoming desensitized and numb to the, the pain that I know this brings your heart. And I, and I beg you, Jesus, to allow us to not pigeonhole ourselves as your church into one thing or the other thing, but to be a people who, who, who come before you with open hands, open agendas, and say, what would you have us to do to ensure Jesus that the next generation of the most vulnerable aspect of your creation, your children, are protected from the evil of the enemy? Father, let us not sit 
idly by and, and be consumed by building our own kingdoms, by making our own money, by getting our own possessions, that, that we forget, God, of what you called us to do, that, that we should only hold the treasure so long enough, that we should only hold the wisdom so long enough that we could pass it down and entrust it into the next generation that comes after us. God, this life you've given us is but a, a, a do. It, it is just a vapor that is here today and it's gone tomorrow. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be a part of something that is a change that echoes through generations. Father, I pray that you would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. That you would create an uprising in the local church to protect and care for the orphan and vulnerable. Jesus, I pray specifically for every one of 19 parents who will no longer see their child. It's a painful and and heartbreaking reminder of the effects of sin in this broken and fallen world. I pray specifically for the two adults who lost their lives, who who may not have a family to, to, to be able to go home to ever again. Jesus, our heart breaks because we know that this breaks yours. But Father, don't let us just enter into these moments and and, and feel sad and feel numb and then just go back to life or to think that the change that needs to happen to make anything different is too big for us and somebody with more influence, more clout, more uh, prestige or more ability to write law or to whatever, that that's for somebody else to do. Every person under the sound of my voice, Father, we have a responsibility to be agents of light in this dark world. You called us to to be the change. You called us to be bringers of change. You called us to be ministers of reconciliation so that we could show a world, that we could show a world full of lost and desperate and hurting boys and girls that they have been reconciled to the Father and that they have hope, that they have healing, that they have a purpose in you. And Jesus, I pray the same thing we prayed last week. Lead us to do whatever you would have us to do for the orphans and the vulnerable children of this world. Let us us each take ownership of whatever part, however big or small that is. In your name, amen. As we get ready to continue on our series of Ephesians today, I invite you to grab your Bible. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. Um, we're going to dive specifically into verse 7. If you're kind of new to MCC, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We've been going kind of word by word, by word verse by verse. Um, we are just diving into this. The book of Ephesians, Paul writes to a church, very similar situation than ours, and living in a world where kind of anything goes. And Paul writes to them and says, hey, before you start trying to do certain things to get the good life, I need you to understand the life that you have in Christ. I need you to understand who God is and who you are in him. Because when you understand who he is, you'll know who you are, and then you'll know what to do. Don't get it backwards and start trying to do things to become somebody. Figure out what has been done for you in Christ and who that makes you, and then you'll know what to do in this life. Then you'll have the life that truly is real life in Christ. And so if you're reading with me, I invite you to go grab your Bible. Uh, We're going to read Ephesians 1 through 7. We'll stop at 7. That's our verse for the day. And then we'll begin to unpack what in the world this all means for us. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that has a lot in common with us, and he says this. 
verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with the pleasure, with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us and the one he loves. And verse seven, it's our verse for the day. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Father, help us to see your word for what it is and allow it to change our hearts to what they can be so our lives are different. In your name, amen. So, so far, as we've gone through Ephesians, just to kind of recap, again, we're we're trying to figure out what is our identity in Christ? Who are we in him now? I wanna walk you through kind of recapping a little bit of, of where we're at so far. So as he's explained, not just your identity as an individual, but our collective identity as a church, both individualistic and collective, here's what he said so far. First of all, we are saints, which is awesome. You didn't have to die. Nobody had to vote on it. He says, in Christ, you're a saint. You're set apart for a holy purpose. Next, he says, you're blessed. And what he does here in verses three through 14, he begins to expound upon what in the world that blessing looks like. And and a lot of this is just extrapolating that you're blessed because you're chosen. You're blessed because you're holy. You're blessed because you're blameless. You're blessed because you're adopted. You're blessed to be a saint. So second thing is blessed. Next, he says, you are chosen. He said, from the foundation of the world, you are chosen in Christ. And he said, you are chosen to be, have the identity of somebody who is holy. Again, these holy and blameless, go right in here with saint, but extrapolates it a little bit more. He says, you are holy, set apart. Verse five, he says, you're blameless. And we talked about last week that this holiness and blamelessness only comes when we take on Jesus's holiness and blamelessness and he takes on our unholiness and blameworthiness. Double impartation. He takes all of our blame and all of our unholiness. We take on in Christ, his holiness and his blamelessness. And then, Last week, we leaned heavily into this reality and we're gonna take on a little bit today as well that we have been adopted and that we are bought in and part of a new family. And again, all of this is not in our good works, not in our ability to understand things, not in our good attendance at church. All of this is in Christ. So if you see any of this and you're like, hey, I want some more details on that. That sounds like a really good deal. I'd like to get in on that. Go back. Uh, We expanded on that a lot in this series. We spent a lot of time on all that. So if you missed any of those, go back and check them out. Today, we're gonna lean into the seventh thing that we kind of get as our identity. We are redeemed. Say that with me. We are redeemed. I am redeemed. Let's go. I am redeemed. Let's say it with some thumping, some bass in your voice. I'm redeemed. All right. Now we can say that, but the problem is, it's like, we don't really know what that means yet. All right. And so what I want to do is to help you understand what in the world that means. So that if a fourth grader shows up to you and says, Hey, I heard on the song on the radio that I'm redeemed. Mom, what does that mean? Dad, what does it mean to have redemption in Christ? And I hope your, four, your, your fourth grader are asking this question. That'd be awesome. But what, what in the world does that mean? What's redemption? So we're going to unpack this. Let's In order to unpack it, I think we need to go back to verses five and six because it's all kind of bound up and redemption is just a a thing that I believe just accentuates what we have in adoption and helps us understand adoption more. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about adoption and how redemption is really what makes that possible. And then we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about what we are actually redeemed from, all right? So Ephesians 1, five through six. All right, if you're looking on your Bible, 
This is where we're at. This will help us get to what in the world it means to be redeemed. So if you're tracking again, it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through, key word there, if you're underlying stuff, underline that, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now I love this. Paul kind of says this, that he's done this through Jesus Christ according to his pleasure and will. And he kind of hits this little dash right here. And it's almost like he just kind of hits this praise break. Like if you grew up in a church where they did that type of stuff and, and people started running laps during that, like again, some of you, that's the background you came out of. That's awesome. Um, I, you can run a lap in here. I don't care. Um, it's a gym after all. Um, he hits a praise break here and says, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He just kind of like stops that right there in that moment of going, because it's almost like he is just flabbergasted by this reality that we have been predestined to be adopted as sons of Christ. And he just goes on this praise moment here. And so we kind of take that as this, this praise parentheses almost here as you're reading the passage. And then it takes this idea that we've been adopted as sons to Jesus Christ. So kind of go from will and then that connects to seven. So he says, okay, all that's happened. Big praise for that. And then he says, in him, this, this one who made it possible for us to be adopted, in him, we have redemption through, again, if you're underlying stuff, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So what I want to hopefully try to explain to you today is remember back when we talked about adoption. And a lot of people, when we think about this, this doctrine of God adopting us, we have to remember that we're not just adopted to something. A lot of times when we think about God adopted me, we think, oh, now that just means I'm a part of his family and I get his riches, I get his blessing, I get his forgiveness. Now I can talk to him and pray to him. And a lot of times when we think about adoption, all we think about is what we're adopted to, all right? And we talked about last week heavily, it's not just what you're adopted to, it's what you're adopted out of. The fact that, the, that Paul in Ephesians even makes it very clear that you were children of wrath, that you, and justly so, you were due all of the right and just punishment of God because of your sins. The fact that you were broken, the fact that you had made mistakes and sinned against a holy God, that that is what you were adopted out of, that you were a part of this broken and sin-fallen world where Satan leveraged the pull of our sin-scarred flesh and the brokenness of the world to just bring out all hatred, envy, Rape, molestation, we, we talked about last week as this, this orphanage of hell on earth where all the kids long to manipulate, ruin each other's lives, take advantage of each other. And it's all led by the headmaster of hell himself, Satan. He says, this is what you were adopted from and now you're adopted to the family of God. And what we're gonna understand now is the through. Because you don't go to are out of this into this without having someone gone through something so you could go through being a part of the orphanage of hell on earth and into the adopted family of God. So I wanna show you it like this. If you're taking notes, maybe this will help you understand a little bit. So adoption is, is both the from of what I went out of, it's what I'm going to, but we are in the through right now. And we have to understand how in the world we went through, that the adoption happened. How did your adoption go through, because the through, what we're gonna talk about today is this word redemption. So if we're gonna understand redemption, the only way that we can truly understand adoption is if we get what redemption is. Because redemption, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Redemption is what made adoption possible. There is no adoption without redemption. So you're like, okay, well you keep saying that word a whole lot. I still have no idea what it means. I'm gonna give you a definition. 
Redemption. Redemption is the purchase back of something that had been lost. All right? Lost. And it's purchased back by the payment of a ransom. So you remember last week, we ended the service by singing this song. How deep the Father's love for us that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. He said, his wounds have paid my what? My ransom. See, this is what we're getting to get after in this idea of what in the world redemption is. It's the price that had to be paid so that I could be bought out of what was due and just to come my way. Most of the time when you hear the words redemption, it's in, in reference to someone who is in slavery. So if I was going to redeem you, I wouldn't just be redeeming you because you were just out there kind of doing things. You redeem someone who is bound up and has a slave master and you pay that slave master to redeem them back out of that. And this is a concept that actually goes all the way back into Exodus. The Exodus story, if you've, you've watched the movie Prince of Egypt or you've read your Bible, which I would encourage more than watching movies. If you've read that, you hear this story and this is a redemption story. It's a redemption narrative. What you see happening is God has his people, his chosen group of people who from the beginning of time he had chosen predestined to be his people, the Israelites. And they are under slavery, under rule by the Egyptians, Pharaoh. And God shows up to this guy named Moses, speaks to him through a burning bush, says, hey, I want you to go tell my people to let, I want to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And that's kind of their plan. And there's this back and forth between Pharaoh and, and Moses of him saying, yeah, I'll let him. And then he doesn't. God sends plague after plague after plague. And then eventually it comes to this place where God tells the Israelites, okay, here's what I need you to do now. I was doing all this stuff. Now I need you to do something. I need you to put faith in me. And here's what that's gonna look like. And he tells them to go and take a spotless, without blemish lamb and to sacrifice that thing, which, and again, forgive me if you're really like lambs, um, cut it open, take the blood of the lamb and take it and wipe it over the post, the doorframe of your house. And by doing so, you're putting your faith in the blood of the lamb that you are gonna be set free and redeemed out of slavery that I'm going to use because frogs didn't work. The Nile turning to blood didn't work. Boils on their skin didn't work. Cows and gnats and everything being killed off. None of that worked. But what will work is the blood of the lamb. Still remains true today. He says, take the blood of the lamb, put it over. And in doing so, you're gonna put faith that when death comes to this entire town, it's gonna to pass over you and you will be in life set free. Which is no coincidence that when Jesus then shows up on the scene, one of the very first things that is ever said about him is said by his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this about his cousin, Jesus. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything in Exodus was foreshadowing that. And then Paul in Corinthians, he says, again, talking about Jesus, he says, behold, our Christ, the Passover lamb has been slain. So, so the big idea in all of this is that we were once God's family. We were once God's children. We were once, and again, at the very beginning, we talked about, again, the origin story. God created us. We were his. We were his beloved. There we are. And that was where we were. But we fell from that. And we began to be bound by our own sinful desires in our flesh in this broken, fallen world that Satan had primary rule and reign over. And in that rule and reign, we fell, we sinned, we broken. And the only way we can get out of this is if someone perfect comes in and pays that price and redeems us. So the ransom cost for all of us 
the ransom for you to be set free out of hell's orphanage was perfection. The perfect blood of the son of God, which none of us are. So Jesus comes, he becomes the spotless, unblemished lamb. He gives his life. He pays our ransom so that we can be in faith set free to be redeemed. And that's the whole purpose of it. That's what redemption is, is that there had to be a price to be paid for us to be set free. And somebody had to pay it. God couldn't just go, I'm just gonna pick you out and choose you into adoption. And that's the way most of us think about adoption. And that's why I think so many people are repulsed by Christians is because we buy into the doctrine of adoption. We're like, yes, I'm adopted. I'm a part of God's family. I get to talk to him. I'm a king's kid. I'm the head, I'm not the tail, blah, blah, blah. We go into all those things, right? I can talk to him, I'm saved. But we forget that I've been redeemed and adopted. And because I've been adopted, I'm now part of a new family. I don't just have redemption, I have a new father. And that new father now tells me how to live life. I'm not just set free, redeemed, and now I'm just a free man to do whatever I want. I'm free to drink what I wanna drink. I'm free to go where I wanna go, free to think what I wanna think. I'm free to sleep with what I wanna sleep with or who I wanna sleep with. I'm free to do all the things I want because I've been redeemed, so I'm free. Paul says, well, yeah, you're free, but you have a father. Like, like think about it like this. Like if, if I find so a feral child in town somewhere, like, I don't know, a feral sixth six grade boy. Like if somehow <laughs> there's a feral sixth grade boy who I catch getting into my, my dumpster at my house, you know, or the dumpster at the church. We'll make it the church because yeah, I don't know what would happen if there was a sixth grade boy trying to get in the dumpster at our house. That'd be wild. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kid, a feral kid, you know, a, a homeless child out here. And he comes and, and he's obviously like, he's been on the street for years and years and years and years. And I call you up and I say, hey, I need you to take this kid in. I need you to adopt him. And you agree. What do you think is gonna be some of the biggest struggle as this kid who has had no authority, no boundaries, doesn't know what a curfew is, doesn't know what manners are, doesn't know how to use a, a, a fork and a knife. What do you think some of the hardest things in your home are gonna be? Discipline right? Rules, regulation. Because he now has a father and a mother, right? And see, a lot of times God adopts us. He says, I'm setting you free from slavery. You don't have to keep eating out of the garbage can of sin anymore. And he sets us free. And then we're like, I just still want to keep doing like, I live on the streets type of things. And God's going, no, I, I have a, trust me. It will be better if we learn what a bedtime is. Trust me, it'll be better if we learn how to treat people and talk to people the right way. Trust me, it'll be better. You'll have more peace if we don't punch people when we disagree with them. And for many of us, that's where our Christianity fell off from just being redeemed and I'm not a slave to sin anymore to I'm actually have God as a father, as my dad, who actually loves me and cares about me enough to show me what this freedom from slavery actually is. And so what I wanna show you is I wanna walk through how adoption is both something that is added to our life and something that is subtracted from our life. It's addition and it's subtraction. First of all, from the addition side, here's what we get. We get status and privilege. Now you may be going, well, what status and what privilege? You get the status and privilege that Christ had. 
You get the status of being a king's kid. You get the status of being co-heirs with Christ. You get the status of being holy and blameless as he is holy and blameless. You get his status and then you get his privilege, which means that the same way that he had intimacy with God and could talk with God and connect with God, you get that same thing. Now here's the one that's a little bit different. You get, and we don't like this at all. (laughs) We get discipline, all right? Because again, you have a father now, guys. So what do you expect? We actually get discipline. There's this passage in Hebrews I wanna show you. Hebrews 12, six, it actually proves that you have a father, that you get discipline. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, which is why we shouldn't be like, oh man, God's disciplining me. Like, no, that means you have a dad. One of the worst things you can do for your kids, and you guys know this, you've experienced this, one of the worst things you can do for your kids is just let them do whatever they wanna do. The best thing you can do for them is give them rules, give them boundaries. And most, all of our kids actually, whether they say it or not, most of them crave those rules and boundaries because they know how far they go. They know where safety is and they know where vulnerability is because you've created guardrails for their life. And God, in the same way as a loving father, does the same thing. He says he disciplines the one he loves and the chastisement, uh, he chastises every son whom he receives. This chastisement word, it's, uh, I'll say it the way a millennial and Gen Z would like. It's not punishment, it's, repercussions. (laughs) repercussions. <laughs> it's consequences. All right. You tracking with me? Because again, um, you can go and, and rob the truest bank that's right here on the corner and God will forgive you of that. But friend, there's still going to be consequences. You know, I'll send you letters in jail. Like, you know, there's, and, and again, God's going to allow some of that to happen. He's gonna allow some of the consequences. And again, it's not him punishing you for sin because that would nullify the punishment that brought us peace through his son on the cross. He's not punishing you for that. But again, you're gonna have to get out of some of the, you're gonna have to get into some of the consequences because that's what disciplines you so that your life actually changed. And and then when you get out of prison, you don't go, you know what I should do? Rob another bank, right? That has to happen. And so this is where we go from being people. Okay, now we've been adopted. And I think this is why so many people have such a hard time with church. We hear these people, you know, they hear these people say, oh, I've been adopted by God. I'm, part of, I'm one of God's kids. And then you don't look like God. You don't do what Jesus did. You don't seem like you're a part of the family. Like if you did take that, you know, sixth grade feral kid home with you, hopefully after five or six years, he would start to embody some of the characters and the morals of your own family. He would start maybe to have some of your mannerisms. He would start, if you're a big Braves fan, he started to be a Braves fan. If you, if you loved Georgia Tech for some reason, he would start to love Georgia Tech. <laughs> All those things would, would, would start to be what would be identifying characteristics of this child who now became a part of your family. And we kind of look at our own lives and go, well, well where is that happening? I explain it to this. We, we talked about this at my small group. And again, if you're not a small group, do that. We wonder why we don't look more like Christ in our lives. Like we hear these things about the fruit of the spirit. Like we want love in our life. We want joy, peace, patience, kindness. We, we want to have that same love and zeal. We wanna have the same spiritual power and fur. We wanna pray and see miracles happen. We, we want to have the ability to, to just have faith even when it doesn't make sense. We want all of those things. And I, and I, I liken it to this, like Christmas morning, right? my house is upstairs and a downstairs. Christmas morning, I want my kids to fully experience the blessing of being one of my child. And so under our Christmas tree, there's gonna be some gifts down there for our kids. And I want them to be able to experience the lavish love of a father. And I'm gonna show them the gifts that they have. Those are gonna be downstairs, okay? Now, what, am I have to, what do my kids have to actually do in order to receive these gifts that help them to see the type of loving father that I am? And, and maybe these gifts, will, I don't think they really transform them, but stick with the metaphor. Um, they play with them for 15 minutes and then they go back to the other toys they already had. Um, but what do they have to do to experience the gift? 
If they're upstairs, they got to come downstairs, okay? And this idea of discipline, that's what that is. It is the spiritual equivalent to the kid going downstairs so they can receive the gift, the gift of love, the gift of patience, the gift of a transformed heart that allows you to actually be a different person at work, a different person in traffic, a different person when temptation happens. Spiritual discipline is us walking down the stairs and going, okay, now I'm in the right place to receive the gift of self-control. Now I'm in the right place to receive the gift of a patient heart. Now I'm in the right place to receive the ability to forgive people. So I wanna detail this out for you as best that I can of what are we talking about when we talk about spiritual discipline, all right? Here's a laundry list of them. And, and there's maybe more, but these are the ones that I know for sure are bound up in scripture, spiritual disciplines. And again, these are the things that put us in the place to look more like God's kids. Again, this isn't what changes you. Let me track with that because there's some people that would say that's the case. You do these and you're magically gonna change. That is false. That's saying that these things save you and change you. They don't, Jesus does that. But these are what put you in the place so that he can do it because you can't unwrap the presence if you stay upstairs. Prayer is a stair step. Fasting is a stair step. Meditation is, generosity, study, Simplicity, getting rid of all the garbage in your life. Solitude, being by yourself. <laughs> Amen. Submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. These are the things that allow us to go down the stairs to experience the transformation that makes us look like we're one of God's kids. If you want more information, there's an amazing book written by a guy named Richard Foster on this. It's actually called Celebrate, The Celebration of Disciplines. Richard Foster, The Celebration of Disciplines. Highly, highly recommend it. Life-changing book. Helped me understand what in the world we were talking about as a, you know, a kid who just thought I could just go to church and, and be fine as an 18-year-old young man and actually was life-changing for me. So that's discipline. So that's what we gain from our adoption. Here's what we lose. Again, we talked about this a little bit. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here. We lose our unholiness. Again, the reason we lose that is because we take on Christ's holiness. And the only way we can take on Christ's holiness is if he loses it and takes on our unholiness. That's what we talked about last week. Again, that's double impartation. So we gain that holiness. And now God goes, you're set apart. You have a divine purpose in me. We also lose our insecurity because when we're back in the orphanage of hell, we lived and operated off a scarcity mindset. So I will beg, borrow, and steal to make sure I have everything I need because I don't trust that I have a father. But now I know I do. So if you wanna talk bad about me, I don't have to talk bad about you in return because I know who I am in Christ. I have security. I don't have to live for this uh, person's approval or, or their adulation. I have that in Christ. I don't have to kill myself at a job to make sure that I can have all of this money to, to have more than enough because I know that in Christ I have more than enough. I have security. So the thing that's gone from now is the insecurity. I don't operate a scarcity mindset because I have a father and he's the father who says he would pour out every blessing on me possible. Everything that the Holy Spirit could do to me says he will do to me. That's awesome. And the last thing, and again, this is back into this concept of redemption is I now, because I'm adopted, I'm no longer enslaved. I'm no longer enslaved. I have fully been set free to live a completely new life. 
And friends, um, that's what we're getting ready to celebrate. You're getting ready to see a, a young girl be baptized. And what you're gonna see in this baptism as a, as a band comes back up, they're gonna sing a song. And then the band is gonna um, lead us through that song as we celebrate who God is and what he's been doing. And then stick around, please don't, I know some of you, again, I, I can see things. Uh, some of you, as soon as the song starts going, you leave. Um, don't leave because I want you to celebrate and party with this young woman as she gets ready uh, to, to give her life to Christ and be baptized. And what's cool, we were actually talking about this back there in the back as, as church was happening, uh, or getting ready to start. Um, this week has been, she's had her birthday party and end of school party, and now she's getting baptized. So like in the same like few days, she, she's celebrating her birth and her rebirth. That's awesome, right? And so she was talking about how she had this really fun like end of school year party. And I was like, listen, you know what's awesome? Is the Bible tells us that angels in heaven are throwing a party as well when somebody gets baptized. So no, like, you know, your party at school is probably pretty cool, but the party that's going on in heaven is probably pretty awesome. And I'd love for her to also be able to experience like a little bit of a party in here, okay? So when you see her come out by the water, celebrate with her, celebrate with the family and celebrate in tandem with all the angels in heaven who are rejoicing at seeing this little girl through the redemption of Christ be fully adopted into the family of Christ. It's gonna be an amazing thing. And I can't wait for us to experience it together. Let's pray and then we'll worship and then we'll praise the God who redeems and adopts. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace, mercy, and kindness to us. We are so undeserving. We do not deserve it, even in the slightest. And I pray, Jesus, in these moments, you would awaken our hearts to your love, your mercy, and your kindness. I pray as we see this beautiful representation of what's been done for us in Christ through the burial and the resurrection, Jesus, that we would know that it's through you and through you alone that we are brought into this family. And I pray you would lead us to change. Make us different, make us new, make us one with each other. We praise you, God. We need you, God. Help us to be a church who shows a broken, messed up, sin-scarred world around us what it means to be a child of God, to have a father, a king. We thank you for what you've done for us. We praise you now in these moments ahead. In your name, amen.